I received uh, this week in my email, mostly which is junk email that I receive. But I received this one that I thought was interesting. I didn't print the whole outline in color this morning, but I did the current event for today. This was produced by prophecynewswatch.com and I, some way or other, have ended up on their email list and uh, usually glance at it briefly, but this one I did a double take on because it's so in line with what we have been talking about in our study of prophecy and especially as it relates to the tribulational period and that which is going to occur and the idolatry that's going to return. A few weeks ago I made the statement that as I first began some 65 years ago preaching on prophecy, I, um, I had difficulty in believing that Americans in our civilized society could ever revert again to idolatrous worship that was so overt where they would bow down before an image. But current events and recent times have changed my position on that, and I'm not surprised at anything that develops uh, even in a so-called cultured, civilized society. But I had said in our study a few weeks ago that there is going to be a return during the tribulation to idol worship, and then this week I ran across this interesting article. It's titled, Disturbing Symbolism, as the Commonwealth Games Recreate the Worship of Baal. The article said they aren't trying to hide it anymore. During the opening ceremonies of the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, England, on July 28, a giant mechanical bull with glowing red eyes, was rolled out into the center of Alexander Stadium. The bull was approximately 10 meters high, and it took more than five months to build it. It had been given the nickname Raging Bull, and it absolutely dwarfed all of the human participants that were involved in the performance. The hero of the opening ceremony, a character known as Stella, calmed the creature down, and then all of the human performers gathered around the giant bull and literally began to bow down and worship it. I've seen a lot of really weird things in recent years, but I've never seen anything quite like this. A total of 72 nations participate in the Commonwealth Games, and so this opening ceremony was being viewed by countless uh, television screens all over the planet. The symbolism is the ritual as well was planned in advance and the organizers knew exactly what they were doing. But they were also counting on the fact that the vast majority of the general population would not consciously catch on to what was actually taking place. The bull has always been a symbol of an ancient deity from the Middle East known as Baal. The article goes on, and if you're interested in that, you can 
uh, go to that website and and look at it. But the worship of Baal, of course, was one of the downfalls of the children of Israel throughout their history. And uh, I thought we had graduated beyond uh, uh, image worship. They used to have the worship of Baal and of idols to give them an excuse for sexual immorality. And uh, almost all of those were related in some way or other to uh, a fertility cult. And Baal was certainly a leader in that area. I thought we had grown to the point in civilization today that we didn't need a religious excuse for practicing immorality. We just did it and uh, and accepted that as uh, uh, the way it is. But it does appear uh, that there is going to be some of the trimmings of that as we get into the tribulation. Our text this morning is from Psalm 46, beginning at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. Therefore will not we fear... Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with swelling thereof. And then we have that word, Selah. That's a Hebrew word which means stop and think about it. Meditate upon the reality that God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with swelling thereof. Think about it. As we've stated, throughout this series that we have titled Understanding Current Events in the Light of Bible Prophecy, our objective is to understand what God has revealed as to the future and His plans and understanding as He sets it forth to us. Understanding what the future holds enables us then to understand what our role is to be in that and what God is doing and therefore what He expects us to be doing in our role as sojourners. We've seen through this study that the Bible refers to the believer as being a sojourner. At the moment of salvation, our citizenship becomes that of the kingdom of heaven, and we are citizens and joint citizens with all other believers. And we find ourselves frequently estranged from our society uh, by behavior and lifestyle and even the way we uh, pursue uh, thought itself. And so the writers in the New Testament have attested that we are sojourners. We've defined that word sojourner from the, from the biblical perspective as being foreigners not living in their own country, but living alongside the locals to do the King of Kings and Lord of Lords business. So as we understand what God's plans are and what God has revealed in prophecy through His Word, then we can better understand what our role is to be on a day-to-day basis. 
in Revelation chapter 14, we have the presentation of seven visions which the Apostle John witnesses and records for us. These are to be seen as seven separate disconnected events that are intended to show uh, not a chronological approach to the end times, but an outline of that which is going to going on now and which is taking place in our life today. There are seven visions. We're going to be looking at two of those today. The Lamb and the Remnant on Mount Zion and the Evangelizing Angel. And then following that, we'll be looking at the introduction of the fall of Babylon. We'll be looking at condemnation for any of those who take the mark of the beast. Then looking at the patience of the saints, the reaping of the earth, and finally the judgment of the apostate vine. Those are seven visions that are recorded for us in Revelation chapter 17, uh, 14, and we're going to be looking at them in a little more detail. Now this 14th chapter of Revelation follows the same process that we followed throughout our study. Remember, it's not to be taken chronologically from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 22, the end. But what we have seen in the past, and it's viewed here once again, is where a presentation is made, and then we go back and look at the details that uh, relate to that. And so it's being able to understand where those breaks come, when the continuity of chronological order is interrupted to put a parenthesis in, to go back and give us explanation and, of course, that's where the original Greek text comes in and my constant reference to it because in the grammar there we were able to see how the parenthetical passages uh, follow uh, rather than a chronological order. So chapter 14 of Revelation is, is viewed as an outline. It goes back to the beginning of the seven-year tribulational period, and then it moves through that seven-year period. It's a series of preview visions which are set forth in the tribulation and outline for us the events that are going to occur during the tribulation. As we move through the book further, we'll see then the filling in of detail as we get to the specifics of that. But back in chapter 13 of Revelation, we saw the beast, one that was out of the sea, which is described as a Gentile political leader, and the other that is out of the land, which is a reference to Israel. He is a Jew, and together, along with Satan, they form that unholy trinity and we find uh, the events transpiring during that seven-year period. So in, in chapter 13, we saw the beast out of the sea, the Gentile dictator that's going to rise to power, and the beast out of the land, 
the false prophet that's going to come out of Israel. And we saw them described. Now in the 14th chapter, we move to another personality during the tribulation. And he is described as the Lamb. And of course, we recognize that the Lamb is of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 13th chapter of Revelation last time, we saw the world was worshiping this dictator of the revived Roman Empire that is going to come to power. They were worshiping him. Now in chapter 14, we see a worship of the Lamb. And so the scene shifts from the earth to heaven for this first vision. Chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads, and heard the voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no man could learn the song but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, and being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So John begins, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Now all of the individuals that are mentioned in verse 1 have been introduced to us earlier in our study in Revelation. The lamb, of course, is a reference to Christ and is identified by John's favorite term for the Savior, a lamb. He said he was a lamb that had been slain as he opened the seven seal scroll. The lamb is uh, uh, identified here then as the object of worship by a hundred and forty and four thousand having his father's name written in their forehead. Now, the Father needs no explanation. We recognize that as God Himself. And the 144,000 are no doubt those that were introduced to us back in Revelation chapter 7. The godly witnesses during the tribulation at that time, remember, were sealed and marked out for God. Mount Zion is a reference to Jerusalem itself. So the scene in verses 2 and 3 changed to heaven from which comes a very unusual and remarkable voice. John describes it as sounding like many waters, great thunders, and hearts. Well, we're not given an introduction as to who the harpers and the singers are. By elimination, it's evident that they're not the four living creatures, 
that do worship before God, those four living creatures, remember, that represent Christ as king, Christ as servant, Christ as man, and Christ as deity or God, and uh, are dealt with in the Gospel of Matthew presenting Jesus as king, the Gospel of Mark presenting Jesus as servant, the Gospel of John presenting, or uh, Luke presenting Jesus as man, and the Gospel of John presenting Jesus as God. The four living creatures are, are sung before. They're not doing this worship and this singing, nor are the elders that represent the church itself, nor the 144,000 that are evangelists in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The singing is done before them, and uh, uh, they may be those that have been martyred previously uh, that were referred to in chapter 6. Uh, we are not given any uh, sufficient uh, information to identify them, but the singers and the harpers are doing that in the presence of the four living creatures and the 144,000 and the church age believers identified as the elders. Now, the 144,000 are noted for their testimony, and in their witnesses, they were not ashamed to bear the name of God, uh, and they received the name of God on their foreheads. The, secondly, we note that they kept themselves separated from the defilement of the world. They are identified in the text as virgins. Now the King James translation of that word parthenoi uh, is accurate to identify they are virgins. It's a literal translation, but the connotation in that context can be a little misleading because uh, it said, uh, they they were virgins and they had not polluted themselves with women. There are those that have developed a theology out of that, that even marital uh, sexual relations ought to be abandoned uh, because that is a pollution. That, of course, does not harmonize with Scripture at all uh, in the New Testament as well as the old. The documentation uh, is... Uh, firm there. So some have suggested that the term uh, virgins uh, uh, is used symbolically to emphasize that they kept themselves from being I involved in idolatry uh, in the scripture, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, idolatry was frequently referred to by the prophets and, and uh, in direct revelation from God himself as uh, uh, being adultery, uh, being fornication, uh, and uh, sexual impurity as it relates to our relationship with God. Others have uh, suggested that perhaps uh, these are uh, like many of uh, the traditional uh, Israelite soldiers uh, when they would prepare themselves in the Old Testament, when they would prepare themselves for battle, 
they would abstain even from marital relationships for that period just prior to their going into battle that their focus might be uh, directly upon the battle that was ahead. We're not given anything but the literal statement, and of course, as you know, my approach to Scripture is to take it literal unless there is uh, other uh, information given in the text that identifies uh, that it is symbolic. But we recognize then that uh, the purity uh, is being stretched here and um, whether it is that they had 144,000 that are going to begin that evangelization after the rapture of the church that are male virgins uh, uh, or whether that is symbolic. Uh, God's capable of working it out either way. And I mentioned uh, some years ago, well, back in 1981, uh, there was an organization in Los Angeles that was trying to enlist 144,000 Jews that would remain male virgins, and uh, they might be able to put this group together so that they could hasten uh, the tribulational events. Uh, God must get amused, if not annoyed, by our attempts to work things out for him, uh, who created the heavens and the earth and spoke it, and it came into existence. Now the lamb is mentioned. John says, I looked and lo, a lamb. And we have identified that lamb as the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as Messiah. He's presented here following uh, uh, our examination of the worship of the beast. And we see that he is being worshipped here in this context. In chapter 5 of Revelation, uh, verse uh, uh, 6, uh, we saw the lamb as though it had been slain. And in chapter 5, verse 8, uh, 12, and 13, we saw the lamb worshipped. And uh, so it's a... Uh, the, the breaking of the seventh seal, remember, uh, could only be done by the lamb that was slain and that worship uh, transpired from that. And so here once again we see the, the lamb, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as our sacrifice, as our Redeemer, who on our behalf took our sins upon himself that he might pay our debt and uh, certainly is the object then of worship. He says, John says, the Lamb stood on Mount Zion. So Mount Zion uh, is a scene that takes place here on the earth and uh, it is a picture of Christ establishing his millennial reign. Uh, the heavenly view of Jerusalem is uh, referred to in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 as Mount Zion. But the event that is pictured here uh, in this first vision was prophesied in Psalm chapter 2 verse 6 where the prophet wrote, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That would be Jerusalem. And this vision then is given to us as a forecast of Christ's return to the earth and uh, 
uh, is prophesied by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, beginning at verse 4. Zechariah said uh, concerning the second advent of Christ when he will come back to the earth and establish his millennial kingdom. His feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and the half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and the half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azale. Yea, ye shall flee like as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Of the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. It will be a day which shall be known to the Lord not day nor night, but it shall come to pass at evening time it shall be a lot. So Mount Mount Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, and the mount itself is the Mount of Olives. uh, And that mountain when Christ brings, having come and taken us up at the rapture, and the events of the seven-year tribulation playing out here, then bringing us back, and he will not simply come in the air, but he will land upon the Mount of Olives, and when he does, the mountain will split in two, and there will be a valley that will open up to Azale on the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea on the other side. And uh, it's just a note of interest that there is an earthquake fault that lies from Mount uh, or, or from Azale on the Mediterranean through the middle of the Mount of Olives to the Dead Sea. So it's prepped. All it needs is the trigger. Uh, but that's at least seven years off because there's going to be a seven-year tribulational period. But that will be uh, introduced, of course, by our being uh, raptured in the air by Christ coming in the air before that seven year begins. So we have Christ introduced. Now we have a hundred, the 144,000 evangelists are referred to once again. And we've identified these previously. There are 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. We did note in our in the listing of the tribes and our understanding of that that while twelve tribes are listed, the tribe of Dan is absent from that list because the double portion uh, that went to the descendants of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. And uh, while we are not told why Daniel is left out of the hundred and forty-four thousand we can account for the 144,000 with 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph that became known as Ephraim and 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph that became known as Manasseh. Now we notice that these evangelists were sealed. Remember back in chapter 6, these evangelists were sealed with the mark of God in their forehead. Uh, and uh, uh, the mark of God that is listed here uh, is the 
name of their father. The lamb's father's name is written in their foreheads. Now the word in is a miscorrect uh, translation of the preposition. The preposition that's used in the original Greek is uh, not in, but epi, which means upon. And the point that I make by that, some believe the mark is going to be inside the forehead, not going to be visible, but a reference to the mind, but the uh, language identifies clearly that it's going to be visible and going to be on the outside, uh, on the forehead to become visible to all. So we have the lamb identified and we have uh, the 144,000 and uh, there is a song that is sung then and as again we've mentioned we don't necessarily uh, aren't able to identify who the singers and the harpers are but they are singing this song and uh, the 144,000 are to learn uh, this song we are told. He said, I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the beast, that is, the living creatures and the elders. And no man could learn the song but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. So the symbolism of the voice here, a voice of many waters. Uh, waters are symbolic of a multitude of singers or a multitude of the heavenly host uh, uh, in that uh, with many waters. And the voice of great thunder. Thunder is always used in scripture in reference to judgment. And then uh, in addition to that, the harpers uh, harping with their hearts. Now we do note in the music that is dealt with in the Bible that when uh, joy is the focus, harps were the instrument uh, upon which the celebration was based. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 8, it says, The mirth of Tarbish ceaseth. The noise of them that rejoice endeth, the joy of the heart ceaseth. When there is no joy, when there is grief or despair, they hang up their hearts. In Psalm 137, beginning at verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there they sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they wasted us. They required of us mirth, seeing us one of the songs of Zion, they said. How shall we sing of the Lord's song in a strange land? That was during the Babylonian captivity period when uh, they hung their harps. But now the harps are the focus here. So while there is tribulation on the earth, there is celebration and joy in heaven. I mentioned earlier the purity of the evangelist. 
They're not defiled with women. They are identified as virgins. And I mention that some have taken this to to indicate that even in marriage, uh, that marital relationships ought to be abstained uh, from that would be contradictory to what we find uh, in uh, the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Paul wrote and addressed this very issue uh, that was being discussed at that time. He said, concerning the things whereof you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, to avoid, nevertheless, to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That means what is rightly hers. And likewise also the wife unto her husband. The wife hath not power, and that word should be authority, of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not authority of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and then come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinence. I speak this by permission and not by commandment, Paul writes. I would that all men were even as I. He was a single man, and so he said, I'm writing this by permission. But every man hath his own proper gift, one after this manner and another after that. I remember one evening as I was preparing to go on a date with uh, uh, the lady that later became my first wife, or my last wife as well. Uh, my mom said, I'm getting pretty concerned about this relationship with Minnie. And I said, no concern, Mom. Me and Paul. Me and Paul. Me and Paul. Next morning I said, oh, by the way, Mom, I asked Minnie to be my wife last night. She said, what about you and Paul? I said, Paul's on his own. <laughs> so to identify this as as a contamination uh, in our spiritual walk would be wrong according to Paul's dealing with this very specifically. But they are pure in their relationship with God and in their moral uh, behavior uh, they are pure. Uh, they are a separated group of men and uh, they not only profess to follow the Lamb, but they actually do follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Remember, they are the evangelists in the first three and a half years. James, uh, uh, in chapter 4, verse 4, says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Wherefore, therefore will a who will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so we have that, that identification of morality and uh, uh, holiness uh, that is related here. Uh, these evangelists are further identified as the first converts following the rapture of the church. Let me, let me remind you. The next great event of Bible prophecy to be fulfilled will be when Christ comes in the air and calls church age believers 
up to meet him in the air and then we go with him to his father's house. There are two events that are going to occur uh, in our study of that, that as he comes in the air, uh, he's going to bring the souls and spirits of those who have died as believers before his coming in the air. He's going to bring them with him. And they're going to get their resurrection bodies. And those of us that may be alive at that time, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we are changed to be like him. And we're caught up to meet him in the air and to ever be with him. When we get to heaven, the first thing that is on the schedule is what is called the judgment seat of Christ, which we would better equate to an awards banquet in the sky where each believer is going to be given uh, commendation for the life that they have lived in their representation of Christ as a sojourner here on the earth. Each one of us is going to be evaluated on the basis of what God has assigned us to do and how well we have conformed to that. No comparison one with the other, but what God has assigned us to do and how well we have accomplished that. And then there's going to be commissions for the millennial kingdom and for the eternal kingdom where our role is going to be given at that particular time. And we will look forward to that. So, following that rapture, uh, and we go before the judgment seat of Christ, and then there is the marriage the consummation of our relationship with Christ to rule and reign with Him throughout eternity, that rapture then leaves uh, uh, quite a hole in the population of the world uh, and uh, uh, a lot of explaining that has to take place. Well, the 144,000 are Jews then who are going to recognize Jesus truly was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and is coming again. And so they will be the first converts. And they are identified here. These are those that are redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. The, the phrase, the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, identify them as being the first fruits out of the tribulation, the first that are saved out of the tribulation. These are not the first fruits of Christ. That's the church age believer, and that's dealt with in Paul's documentation of those things. But this is the first fruits then unto God and to the Lamb as it relates to the tribulational period beginning. In Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and 10, we saw earlier where John said, I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. 
So these are the results of the 144,000 evangelists, a great multitude innumerable that will be saved as a result of their evangelization that takes place. We talked about the purity of the saints, uh, of these evangelists, these 144,000, but we also have an emphasis upon the truthfulness of these evangelists. It says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So they are faithful and true witnesses, uh, and uh, we, we find the tongue is the most difficult part of the physical body according to the word of God to control these evangelists do an exceptional job in that area. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 13 speaks about them, saying the remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies. Nevertheless shall a deceitful tongue, uh, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them pray. So the first vision in chapter 14 then is of uh, this uh, worship of the Lamb and the 144,000 and the four living creatures and the church age believers are seen there in a worship of God. Now the scene shifts a bit in verse 6 of Revelation 14. John said, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the honor of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains. Of water. In the next seven verses, then, of these, this chapter, three angels with different announcements are introduced. If voices are silenced on the earth, God's angels will pick up the slack. God is never thwarted in his purposes. And uh, so while he has 144,000 uh, human evangelists that are going out, converted uh, Jews from the tribes of Israel, and now we have a messaging angel, an evangelistic angel that is sent out with the message of salvation, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of, of uh, waters. This preacher is an angel. Now I've tried to prove the text that all preachers are angels because the word simply means messenger. If we were to translate the word angelos, it means messenger. But uh, that would be more terrestrial than celestial. 
This creature is a celestial angel. God will use his power to prevent the Antichrist from defeating the angel, and he will declare his message uh, in support of 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are evangelizing at that particular time. As I've said before, we we recognize that the word angel means messenger. Uh, this, however, does appear to be a supernatural evangelist, a celestial uh, messenger that is sent forth. And the message of the angel is a message of the everlasting gospel. The emphasis on the message during that seven-year period is fear God. Give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. I mentioned a reminder concerning the admonition to fear God. That is not the word that we would use to fear, to shrink back in terror, but rather it is uh, the word that draws us in homage and worship, a reverential awe is a much better translation uh, of the word fear in that context. During the tribulation, when the beast demands to be worshipped as God, he will restate his claim to be the central focus of all worship. The everlasting angel then, the supernatural evangelist, uh, <clears throat> is a warning of the judgment that is coming against the Antichrist and against those that follow him. And so God is issuing a final call to the wicked and to the apostate because judgment is at hand. God always provides grace before judgment. We need to be looking at the offering of grace and recognize that judgment is around the corner. The Creator has a claim of His message upon the earth. He created it. He brought it into existence. It was sold out by man and now having been uh, redeemed uh, from man, uh, from sin on the part of man, the earth will experience a redemption as well. In Romans chapter 14, verse 11, Paul wrote, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So judgment is coming. The directive will of God and the permissive will of God will be eliminated at that point and it will simply be the overruling will of God. The overruling will of God will usher in a time of judgment and the lake of fire and brimstone and the climatic events of the end of time. Today's current events declare the day of that coming in the air must be soon. 
Paul thought he would see it in his day. We're 2,000 years closer to it than he was. We will recognize by the events that a prophecy that had been fulfilled to this point and by the events that have been revealed that are going to take place and the staging of those events that his coming must be soon. The circumstances that confront society today reveal the stages are being set. The stage in heaven and the stage here upon the earth. The population is busying themselves uh, trying to vie for positions uh, politically in our world today uh, to uh, try out for and and to become those leading actors on the stage of the tribulation here. Uh, they are busy at that, not really understanding what they are asking for. The curtain, of course, that will uh, be raised is when the church is raptured from the earth. Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We recognize then his coming to receive us, and then these seven years playing out here upon the earth. Rather view that from heaven and be involved in the activities on stage one there than be here upon the earth and experience that today. We're sojourners. We're foreigners. Not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do the king's business. Now here in the United States of America, we have a unique position in that this is a government well, yeah, it still is, according to the paper. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So, even though we are sojourners and may have citizenship in heaven, we have a responsibility as a government of the people for those things and that influence that we can then give and that voice uh, of encouragement. But we are here to do the king's business. But of course it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. We need to be about the king's business. We have a recognition by these visions in this 14th chapter in Revelation of the staging and the prepping and the urgency ought to be recognized. 